Okay. Shalom, everyone. Welcome, Stephen. Um, this is Ashir Yosefa in Jerusalem with the third in our series of introductory classes for Noahide Nations on Virtual Yeshiva. B'zrat Hashem, today we will continue with our historical overview of the seven universal laws, where and how they began, the reaction of mankind towards them, the impact they had on ancient history, and the type of faith they engendered. Before we begin today's class material, let's just take a moment to review the upcoming classes. Next Thursday, God willing, we will complete our historical overview of B'nai Noach and the Seven Universal Laws. Although I say that with the caveat that we may not, there's so much material here, it's very hard to, to do it all in three classes. At the beginning of June, Belineder, we will begin with a class entitled Leaving the Fold, Handling the Consequences of Leaving One's Religion. Mizrat Hashem, I will have a guest with me for that class, spiritual psychotherapist Helene Finkelstein of Jerusalem. Helene made Aliyah to Israel two years ago from Toronto, Canada, where she formerly had her counseling practice. Helene is a Balachuva, and she is able to relate to the many issues a person faces when they are confronted with error and discrepancies in their religious beliefs and decide to seek the truth about Hashem and approach Him in accordance with His Torah. She made her own journey uh, back from from quasi-secular religious Judaism to being a Torah-observant Jew and making Aliyah. So she's faced a lot of the same challenges. During the months of June and July, the online classes will run weekly, God willing, on Thursdays at 10 a.m. EST, live from Israel. Welcome, Janice. Beli Netter, the classes will be divided into two themes. Learning from Noah and following Avraham during the month of June, and obstacles to spiritual clarity during the month of July. Now in June, um, the classes will go as follows. The first class, as I mentioned, will now be leaving the fold, handling the consequences of changing one's religion, and that truly is following in the footsteps of Avraham. He was the first one to leave the fold. And on that class, I'll have, God willing, Helene Finkelstein with me. Uh, the second class in June will be knowing God. What do we mean when we say that God is one? What is his oneness? How do we relate to it? How do we relate to God in creation? Uh, we've got this amazing, amazing picture here on the screen of the uh, Eagle Nebula. I mean, if that doesn't declare that there is a master creator, I don't know what does. It's beautiful. So we'll talk about creation and how it was creation um, to declare, to, to let us know, to let mankind know that God exists and tell us his characteristics. And we'll talk as well about our obligation, our obligation to know God. What does that mean? What are our obligations to God? In the third class, we'll talk about returning to God. First, we'll talk about Bechira, which is um, our free will. How, why did God give that to us, and how do we use it? What is its role in our lives, and how are we to harness that free will so that it is a positive thing in our life and not, uh, not a negative? We'll talk as well about tshuva, about repentance. And as I mentioned last week, the Torah concept of repentance is quite different than what is normally taught within Christian circles. In fact, there's three to five steps in true repentance, and they're spiritual and physical. So we will talk about doing tshuva 
and we'll talk about Hashgacha, which is divine providence. How does God intervene in our lives, and how should we relate to that in terms of establishing ourselves in a right relationship before him? Welcome, Roy. It's nice to see you in the class. Uh, 7 or 70 will be the final class for the month of June, and in that class we'll be talking about you know, how many Noahide commandments are there. There's seven to begin with, but then some rabbis say that there are 33, some say there's 66, some say that just about any of the Torah commandments that relate with justice, mercy, compassion, the ones that are not specifically designated for Jews, for the Kohanim, for the temple service, that the rest of them are um, open for B'nai Noach to observe. Not obligatory, but definitely open to. And then we will talk about uh, the origins, the Torah origins and the sources for the seven mitzvot. We'll talk about the way that they are portals, they're, they're openings to many more. And we'll talk about obedience as an attitude. And discuss as well the fact that in the Talmud it says that the seven, the seven universal laws are an elevation for mankind. That through them, Bnei Noach can actually become or be considered as righteous as the high priest. And then in July, we'll talk about obstacles and opportunities, but obstacles to spiritual clarity. In the first class, we'll talk about presumed identities and resisting the scepter. And we'll talk about identity theft. Uh, a lot of people, when they are quickened to the Torah, they become enthralled with Judaism. And in many ways, they try to take on Jewish traditions, uh, Jewish dressing habits, and so forth. And what most of them don't realize is that in the eyes of Jews, this is identity theft. And it's not always welcome. So we'll talk about the sensitivities involved in that and how can you draw near to the Torah and feel identified with the Torah and with Israel without offending your brother Judah. And we'll talk about the Torah as being not in heaven, but in our heart and in our mouth, to do it, as Moshe Rabbeinu said. We'll discuss who holds the scepter for Judah. There have been teachings in certain circles, uh, particularly the Lost Tribes circles recently, that the scepter no longer rests with Judah. The authority to interpret Torah was passed to the tribe of God at the time that Moshe gave his brachot before his death and before Yahushua brought the children of Israel into the land of Canaan. And that is not uh, a valid teaching, and we'll discuss why. On the third class for July, we'll talk about spiritual pride and spiritual mixtures, the legacy of Yeroboam. We'll talk about the lingering legacies and attitudes that we might not know we're still carrying, baggage from our past, that affects our ability to learn. We'll discuss Rabbi Nachman's teaching that if we think we really know God, that's usually when we're furthest away. And we'll talk about something that I've put under the heading, something old, something new, something borrowed, not. Uh, well, the analogy of a wedding is often used in Torah. The blending of worship traditions, of borrowing traditions from other religions, is something that is strongly forbidden within the Torah and the Tanakh, and we'll discuss that. And in the final class, God willing, in July, we'll talk about resisting authority, a human condition that has spiritual consequences. We'll discuss how we can limit our capacity for revelation when we resist authority. 
will examine how Moshe Rabbeinu related to the Torah and why it was that the, the that Hashem calls him uh, the most humble of all men and what that type of humility means. It's a special word in Hebrew, anav, and it's not the same as we would understand it normally within uh, the context of the English word humble. We'll talk on another um, teaching of Rabbi Nachman that whenever we're about to make a spiritual ascent progress in our life spiritually, there's usually a valley that comes before it so that we can prepare ourselves for the ups and downs that we go through. And we'll talk about merging the internal and the external aspects of our spiritual development or spiritual lives so that we can progress towards growth and spiritual triumph. Now you can check the class schedule for our Shuvu courses as well as the many other wonderful classes being offered by Noahide Nations on their website at www.noahidenations.com that's N-O-A-H-I-D-E-N-A-T-I-O-N-S.com or here on Virtual Yeshiva in their weekly listing of classes and broadcasts. You can also hear rebroadcasts of the week's classes via the Noahide Nations website. Um, you can check to see if the times are scheduled. And there's also, Ray was telling me that uh, they will rebroadcast this class later this evening or at another time through the week. Now, let me just take a sip of water and we'll turn our attention to today's class. Okay. Last week, we had just barely begun to discuss Noah by the end of the class. Even though these seven universal commandments have, with the passage of time, been connected with Noah as a namesake, we didn't get much past Adam, because the sages tell us that that is really where the seven universal laws began, was in the Garden of Eden. As we discovered last week, the Babylonian Talmud in Sanhedrin 38a tells us that the source of the seven universal laws can be found in God's command to Adam in Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17, which go as follows. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you are free to eat. But as for the tree of knowledge of good and bad, you must not eat of it, for as soon as you eat of it, you shall die. We also learn that Chazal, the Jewish sages, teach that God charged Adam with the responsibility to teach the seven laws to his children, who were teach, to teach them to their children, and so on through successive generations. Chazal derived this from the verses that we just quoted as the source of the seven universal laws, namely the command not to partake of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now later in this class we're going to talk a little bit more about what was the fruit of that tree and how did it affect Noah. The command in this verse not to partake of the tree is introduced by the words and the Lord God commanded Adam saying. There's a seemingly superfluous word here. God commanded Adam and then there's an additional verb saying. And we have to ask ourselves, is the word saying really necessary? Wasn't command enough? It's a foundational principle of the Torah that there are no superfluous words. So when you're studying Torah, if there's a word that appears to be unnecessary, a word that is the same meaning as another word or close to it, that really it could be said without it, that's a clue it's there to alert us that there's something we need to learn that is deeper than the obvious. 
Rabbi Chaim Klorfein and Yaakov Rogalski comment on this verse in their book, The Path of the Righteous Gentile. They say that the word saying indicates that God not only said the commandment to Adam, but he intended that Adam say it as well. It is an accepted principle of biblical analysis that when a verse states, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, it means that God taught Moses something and that he expected him to teach it to the Jewish people or, in the case of the Seven Commandments, to the children of Noah, to all, the man, to all of mankind. We also discovered last week that there is clear proof that these seven laws existed and that mankind was accountable for observing them. And the proof is the Great Flood. A compassionate and righteous judge, God would not have brought such devastating judgment upon the world if man had not been culpable if they did not know they were required to abide by certain laws and chose instead to knowingly reject them. We saw that unless the inhabitants of the world had known and understood that God required a certain standard of behavior from them, but then chose to rebel against this standard of behavior, the flood would not have occurred. In Genesis 6 verses 11 to 13 it says the earth became corrupt before God. The earth was filled with lawlessness. When God saw how corrupt the earth was, for all flesh had corrupted its ways on the earth, God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with lawlessness because of them. I am about to destroy the earth. Now, unless there was an accepted standard of righteousness and laws which defined the standard for everyone, then how could the earth have been judged as corrupt? How could mankind have been deemed to have corrupted their ways? What provided the standard for ways that were not corrupt? That standard was the seven universal laws. The Torah tells us Noah was a righteous man. He was blameless in his age. Noah walked with God. Genesis 6-9 Therefore, there were laws that defined blameless behavior. Rashi, in his commentary on Genesis, states that mankind had corrupted themselves through idolatry and sexual immorality and that the lawlessness or wickedness mentioned in Genesis 6.13 refer refers to theft. These are violations of three of the prohibitions that are contained in the seven universal laws. Therefore, we find that there is clear evidence that the seven universal laws existed prior to Noah. Otherwise, mankind could not have been judged for violating them. We also learned last week from a Midrash that Hashem extended abundant opportunity for mankind to repent. The 120 years during which the ark was being built and an additional seven days of climatic and chaotic events upon the earth all provided by God to offer mankind a chance to avoid destruction and return to a proper relationship before Hashem. Despite his abundant and unmerited compassion, our earliest ancestors took a very deep plunge into the depths of total destruction. So here we are, ready to begin the material of this week's class at the end of the flood, having left off at its commencement last week. But first, in order to understand the world in which Noah found himself, we have to go back in time to the time of creation just for a moment. We are told by Chazal that there are seven heavens. Kabbalistically, we understand this to be, a progressive, to be progressive realms or levels of constriction, whereby the creator of the universe 
constricted himself with veils of concealment in order that his infant, that his finite creation might be able to exist within his presence. Torah tells us that the glory of Hashem fills the earth. Certainly when we look at this picture of the, uh, the nebula, we can't contest that. Indeed, the glory of Hashem does fill the earth and the skies and the heavens. Everything that exists, exists purely because he is and he is the sole source and the force that sustains all life. It is said that even the rocks have souls of a very low level. This is to say that Hashem creates all, fills all, sustains all. In fact, in Judaism we're taught that the food we eat contains divine sparks which nourish our bodies and souls. This is the reason why we say brachot, blessings, before we eat. Before we partake of any food, we have a blessing to say. And then we thank Hashem when we're finished eating. Because we understand that everything has the energy of Hashem within it. That without that, not even the computers that we're sitting in front of right now, participating in this shiur, these computers wouldn't exist. They wouldn't be held together. That Hashem fills everything. And we need to be aware of that. But he had to constrict his reality. A good example is um, if we were to take our coffee pot and plug it into a a dam, an electrical power dam, uh, it wouldn't be long before the coffee pot would just not exist. It would be nothing but frizz. It's the same principle. We have to. We cannot connect with the fullness of the glory of Hashem. So he had to constrict himself in concealed layers um, down to a level that we begin to relate to and understand him, that we can bear to be in, in his presence. Now we are told that at the time of creation the world was on a much higher level. Adam and Chava had luminescent coverings that were much superior to our present bodily covering of skin. In other words, they were more spiritual than physical beings. Torah tells us that Hashem moved about in Gan Eden during the cool of the day, towards twilight, and we're given the distinct impression that the first couple were in the habit of communing on a very personal level with their Creator. However, in Bati Lagani, a mamar of Rabbi Yosef Yitzhak Schneerson, the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, on Midrash Rabbah, Song of Songs 5.1, we are told that when Adam and Chava transgressed the divine command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the divine presence withdrew from the earth to the level of the first heaven. Thus began a progression of withdrawals that diminished the tangible presence of the divine presence, the Shekhinah, upon this earth. When Cain murdered Abel, the divine presence withdrew to the second heaven. When Enosh called upon idolatrous gods, Hashem withdrew his presence to the third heaven. The generation of the flood, with their rampant idolatry, sexual immorality, and theft, brought a further withdrawal of the divine presence to the fourth heaven, together with the global manifestation of divine judgment in the form of the flood. And so it was that Noach, the man the Torah tells us was blameless in his generation and walked with God, the future namesake of the seven universal laws, became the second father of mankind. 
The laws which had been commanded by God to Adam, with the instruction to teach them to his descendants, the laws that provided for the culpability of the wayward generation of the flood, were reaffirmed to Noah to pass on to his descendants, together with the original command that was given by God to Adam and Chava, and that was to be fruitful and multiply. Noah and his descendants were also allowed by Hashem at this point to eat meat. It was the first time in history that this was given. But they were also given the prohibition that they not eat the flesh with its lifeblood in it. We find this in Genesis 9 verses 1 to 4. God called Noah and his family out of the ark, confirmed the laws of conduct that they had known from the beginning, and gave them his promise that he would never again destroy the world with a flood, sealing his covenant by placing his bow in the sky. Now science tells us that a rainbow is formed when sunlight is refracted through mist in the sky, with the droplets of moisture creating prisms to reflect hues of light. So one might ask oneself, why did rainbows not occur before the flood? Was there no rain? No moisture in the air? How did vegetation flourish to sustain mankind, who were vegetarians, if the earth was parched? In his commentary on the Pentateuch, the Russian-born rabbi and author known as the Malbim, Rabbi Meir Lov ben Yechiel Michael, who lived between 1809 and 1879, explains that the pre-flood environment upon the earth was quite different and much more stable. The earth's angle relative to the sun was constant, so there were no variations in climate. In other words, there was no spring, summer, winter, or fall. It was one season. Rain fell once every 40 years on the anticipated day, irrigating the fields and filling the reservoirs, providing mankind with the water he needed to drink and providing the vegetation with what it needed to grow. Now this helps me personally understand how we get by in Israel with no rain at all for six to seven months of the year. We have a little bit of Gan Eden here and a whole lot of God in Eretz Israel. But prior to the flood, we know that vegetation flourished in abundance under man's toiling of the soil because mankind did not eat meat. The rainbow had always existed in potential, but the atmospheric conditions simply did not exist prior to the flood to enable the formation of a rainbow in accordance with God's laws of nature and science. And this all will impact upon Noah's faith, as we'll see shortly. Rabbi Uziel Malevsky, in his Torah commentary, Ner Uziel, says that the idyllic pre-flood existence was a contributing factor to mankind becoming far too self-confident and independent, quickly coming to the illusion that man controlled his own destiny, the very thing that Moshe warned the children of Israel not to do in his powerful words of rebuke and warning that are contained in Deuteronomy 8, verses 11 to 18. And I'm going to quote, quote briefly from verses 14 and 17. Beware lest your heart grow haughty, and you forget Hashem your God, and you say to yourselves, My own power and the might of my own hand have won this wealth for me. Mankind discovered they did not control their own destiny, and when Noah exited the ark, the world was a devastated and very different place from the skies down. In a way, the rainbow reminds mankind of our own vulnerability. Immediately after the account of the rainbow in Genesis, 
we are told that Noah planted a vineyard. Most biblical commentators, including Rashi, are very critical of this act on the part of Noah. In fact, Rashi goes so far as to say that Noah profaned himself by becoming a man of the soil and planting a vineyard. Other biblical commentators, however, offer the explanation that Noah's intention was to rectify the sin of Adam and in so doing to bring about redemption. After all, it seems a bit out of logical sequence to focus on growing grapes and making wine when everything about you is only beginning to revive from the destruction of the flood. Surely there must have been other more pressing things for Noach to take care of. In Talmud Bavli, Brachot 40a, one opinion states that the fruit of the tree of knowledge was the grape. Now there's a principle in Torah called Midah Kenegad Midah, which translates into English as measure for measure. Now applying this principle to our sins, it means that in whatever manner we have sinned, it is in that area that we must rectify and atone for the sin. Consequently, if Adam sinned by improper use of the grape, then rectification of that sin would involve proper use of the grape. The Talmud tells us that had Adam waited just a few hours until Shabbat had begun, the grapes could have been elevated from a sin into a mitzvah by using them to sanctify the first Shabbat through Kiddush. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai in the Zohar contends that Noach wished to examine the sin that Adam had committed with the intention of avoiding it himself and learning how to rectify it in the world. But he could not unlock its secrets and as we know from the Torah he actually fell prey to some of the same uh, problems that Adam did only in a different area. In Ziv HaZohar, a commentary on the Zohar, it is explained that when Chava squeezed grapes from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and gave Adam to drink, it is referring to secular wisdom, wisdom other than Torah, such as philosophy which tries to examine divine secrets by way of intellect only, and witchcraft which attempts to harness the forces of impurity. Rather than relying solely on the all-encompassing wisdom of the Torah, man opened himself up to facets of wisdom that are only partial and not whole because they're not infused with the light of the Torah and the inner essence of the Creator. They represent external wisdom that is missing its central purifying essence. Consequently, it is wisdom that is flawed and can lead man astray. Noah failed in his attempt to rectify Adam's error and he came drunk. He was discovered naked in his tent by his youngest son, Ham. Ham then brought shame upon his father by calling his brothers to witness his nakedness. Rashi comments that Ham either castrated or had homosexual relations with his father, resulting in Noach's curse upon Ham and his inability to fulfill the reinstatement of the divine command to be fruitful and multiply. Needless to say, it was not a day that the Divine Presence was pleased, and Adam's sin was definitely not rectified. The Divine Presence at that point withdrew to the fifth heaven, and the world continued on its course. Noach's sons and their wives bore children, 
and their children bore children, and the earth was repopulated, with the families spreading out across the land. The seven universal laws were in effect, but just as before the flood, few heeded them. Rashi and several Midrashim tell us that Noach's son Shem and his grandson Aver established houses of learning for the purpose of understanding and fulfilling the Noahide laws. We mentioned this last week in reference to Yaakov's 14 years of study in the yeshiva of Aver after he left Yaakov's presence and before he went to find a wife in Pradhanaram. Now, at the time of Nimrod and the building of the Tower of Babel, we saw the Divine Presence withdraw yet again up to the sixth heaven. Nimrod was a very powerful king and a warrior. And quickly mankind had come to the place again where they felt that they were in control. And that if the world did have a creator and a divine ruler, that they could be equal to him. And so we have the story in the Torah of the building of the tower of Babel that mankind, and it's understood both in a physical and and a spiritual context, uh, on the physical level that they built this massive tower trying to reach unto the heavens, but on a spiritual level that they were exalting themselves, that their pride, that their presumptuousness, that their arrogance, that their confidence in themselves had reached the heavens, that they were considering themselves... um, on a, on a level with Hashem, on a level of being equal with God. And we know from the Torah that at that point that Hashem came down to see what mankind was doing and was not pleased. And so he confused their languages, divided the world into 70 tongues, 70 languages, which have multiplied since then. But it was at that point that we saw the divine presence withdraw to the level that it that it is now that it was at the time that Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov came onto the scene of world history. But before we go on to Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, I want to take some time to consider the faith of Noah. Who was this man who merited to be the only family spared from the flood, yet who came to such an unseemly fate shortly thereafter? Rashi makes an interesting observation on the verse Genesis 7-7. The verse says, Noach, along with his sons, entered the ark because of the waters of the flood. Rashi comments, Even Noach, who was the most righteous of his generation, was wanting in faith. He at once believed and did not believe that the flood would take place. He entered the ark only when he was forced to do so by the rising water level. The implication here is that Noach's belief in God was lacking. Rabbi Uziel Malevsky refers to it as a, quote, profound internal dissonance, end quote. Now, I think that this is a phrase that could perhaps have been applied to any of us who have left another religion in favor of the Torah, in favor of the Noahide commandments. Whether we're now B'nai Noach or Jews, there was probably a season of time during which we experienced profound internal dissonance. The question is, 
was this bad? Rashi more or less calls Noach a skeptic. He suggests that Noach really did not know whether or not to believe God meant what he said when he told him he was going to destroy the world with a flood. Perhaps this is also why Noach did not pray for Hashem to avert the decree, like Avraham prayed before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe Noach really felt deep inside that God would spare the world at the last moment, that the whole plan of building the ark was simply a wake-up call to get mankind to repent. Should Rashi be criticized? for being so hard on the only believer that the Torah records at the time of the generation of the flood? Or should we perhaps try to define faith, emunah in Hebrew, and what does it and does it not entail? In Judaism we have something called the 13 principles of faith. These were compiled by Maimonides, the great Rambam. They are regarded as the supporting pillars of Jewish faith in Hashem. Each of the 13 principles begins with the statement, I believe with perfect faith that. These 13 principles follow the daily morning prayer service. What if someone is not totally convinced of all 13 statements of belief? Should he simply not say one of them? or not say any of them. Is one a hypocrite if he recites all 13 but doesn't really understand a few of them? Should he wait until all questions are resolved and he's firm in his resolution and belief before he recites the 13 principles? I think you'll agree these are valid questions and they can apply to us in our lives as well. If we were to answer affirmatively to the above questions, then we're saying that faith cannot exist together with uncertainty. Let's be honest. Is there a person alive who has not had, does not have, will not have in the future some form of questions about God? The Torah tells us that God is unseen and unknowable in his fullness. He is infinite and we are finite. How can we not have questions? Rabbi Uziel Malevsky, in his commentary near Uziel, speaking on Parsha Noach, makes a beautiful comparison between how Christianity and Judaism approach faith. I'm quoting now from Rabbi Malevsky. Christianity demands from its followers blind faith. Logic and reason are viewed as extrinsic to religion and doubts are undesirable reactions that are to be stifled and purged from the mind of the believer. The approach of Judaism, on the other hand, is one that encourages questions. Faith that is not based on reason is considered fragile and dubious. Blind faith is for fools. The Torah demands that people think, that they attain faith by means of the intellect. One is expected first to examine every aspect of one's belief in God through the lens of reason before taking the final illogical step that is called emunah, faith. End of quote. Rabbi Malevsky follows up his comparison with the practical example of a surgeon. Before operating, 
A surgeon has to take into consideration the percentage of probability that the procedure in question will be successful. Rarely is a surgeon blessed with 100% probability. After weighing the risks, the chances of success, and considering the patient's state of health, a surgeon may well decide to go ahead with surgery with only a 60% chance of success. There is a 40% chance the patient might die but the greater potential lies in success. However, once in the operating room, the surgeon performs as if he has 100% certainty behind him. Ravi Molesky comments on this example, and he says the same can be said of Emunah. A highly intelligent person must, by definition, entertain doubts in his mind. Even so, he can make a 100% commitment to serve God on the basis of a 60-40 decision. Someone who is 60% convinced that God exists can commit his entire life to that element of the equation, deliberately ignoring his 40% of doubts regarding this matter. Even though he may remain unconvinced regarding certain aspects of religion, he has the ability to make an honest decision to observe the laws of Torah through choosing to act in accordance with one side of his doubt equation. This decision is called emunah. Now that is a comforting thought. Because so often we're encouraged or told that if we have doubts there's a problem. In Judaism doubts are simply a natural part of the process and they propel us and drive us on to study more, to find out more. And truly, there not one of us can know all there is. If you think about the Torah, if you think about the fact that for more than 4,000 years, rabbis and Torah scholars, Leviim, Kohanim, have been writing and studying, writing things on the Torah, there's no way that we can know it all. So it's only natural that we will have questions. And everyone's questions will be different. And they're all valid and acceptable. Avraham embodied this concept as well. He too had doubts. Yet he attained an unprecedented level of righteousness. Why? Because emunah is evaluated according to the quality of one's actions, not one's thoughts. Actions must be one-sided. Thoughts may entertain a wide range of possibilities. Yes, Avraham did have moments of doubt. Think of when he threw himself down on the ground before Hashem and laughed at the suggestion that he, that he and Sarah would have a son, despite all of the times Hashem had so clearly intervened in their lives. The difference between Avraham and Noach was that Avraham, like the example we gave of the surgeon, acted on probability. Noach reacted to his overall intellectual uncertainty, and these doubts manifested themselves into his actions, so that he did not pray for Hashem to avert the divine decree of judgment, nor is it recorded that he proactively tried to warn the people of the impending doom, and he did not enter the ark until the waters forced him to. When Noach and his family left the ark after the flood, their entire world had changed. Encased within the ark for an entire year, 
Noach and his family members truly learned to become family as opposed to individuals. The generation of the flood had exceeded all boundaries in acting as individuals independent of their fellow man and their creator. A year, of it, a year spent in their floating hotel infused Noach's family with a sense of community, which is what Hashem desires for mankind. In fact, community and the family unit are foundational building blocks within Judaism. They are that important. And when you're changing faith, when you're leaving one religion and you're moving towards the Torah, it's a lonely journey. As the B'nai Noach movement is growing, and there's, well, there's not that many places where there's B'nai Noach congregations, very few. It's a very lonely journey. And family and community is such a crucial, crucial part of this. But B'srat Hashem, B'srat Hashem in the future that we should be able to connect people and let the people know about the Noahide Mitzvot that we can get communities going so that it's not such a lonely journey. Still, when Noah left the ark, the world looked very different and the climate was now different and there were temperature variations and the four seasons existed instead of a single period of rain every 40 years. The world had become unstable and Noah felt this vulnerability. Rabbi Malevsky tells us that this is indicated by the offering that Noach was moved to bring upon leaving the ark. In Genesis 8, 20-22, we're told, Noach built an altar to God. He took from each species of pure animals and from each species of pure birds and he sacrificed burnt offerings, the Hebrew word here is olot, on the altar. God smelled the appeasing fragrance and God said to himself, Never again will I curse the land because of man, for the inclination of man's heart is evil from his youth. As long as the earth lasts, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night shall never cease. In this passage of the Torah, we have the four seasons mentioned for the first time. Also, Note that Hashem said that the inclination of man's heart is evil from his youth. This stands in clear contradiction to the Christian doctrine of a person's soul being tainted with sin from birth, as we discussed in our last class. For our purposes at the moment, I would like you to note the type of offering Noah brought. He brought an olah offering, a burnt offering. Now, we often think that Hashem initiated sacrificial offerings, but it wasn't. It was mankind in his attempt to approach Hashem. Noah is the first person recorded in Torah for bringing offerings to Hashem. Cain and Abel were the first two, and they brought an offering from the field and an offering from the flock, respectively. The context of the text in the Torah is that Cain and Abel were moved to share their bounty with God, which represents what we call in Hebrew a shalamim offering, a voluntary offering to express gratitude to God. And these types of offerings are described in Leviticus 3 verse 1. A portion of shalamim offerings would be burned on the altar, a portion was given to the priests, and the remainder was eaten by the worshiper. 
However, an Olah offering is different. The offering is completely consumed by fire upon the altar. There is no portion shared by either the priest or the person bringing the offering. Conceptually, an Olah offering represents an individual's desire to give himself completely to God. Noah brought an Olah offering, a big one. He brought from each of the species that were pure, that were kosher. Noah's entire world had been turned upside down. And probably a lot of his previous doubts had been turned on their ear too. Disembarking the ark, the world around him made it very clear that they could not exist independent of Hashem. The world had a long road to recovery ahead of it. In a statement of acceptance and submission, Noah brought an Ola offering. From the perspective of Torah, human beings were created upon earth with a single purpose, and that is to acknowledge and serve their Maker. We do that not by closeting ourselves away for endless hours of study and prayer. And mind you, study and prayer are excellent. But we must embrace life and elevate every aspect of life, even the mundane things, by training our motivation, our Yetzer Hara, our Yetzer Hatov, by training our motivation in all things, from mundane to sublime, to be in service of Hashem. Study and prayer are vitally important to our success in this area, because without knowledge of Hashem and His commandments, how can we properly serve Him? The prophet Isaiah said, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. But we must apply this knowledge to each aspect of our life, whether we feel like it or not. The Torah does not recognize the notion of, I feel like it. Man was not placed on the earth to simply follow our own whims and desires, despite having been given the free will to choose to do so. We were placed on this earth to make it a dwelling place for the presence of God through our actions and elevating the physical and finite through the spiritual. Rabbi Uziel Malevsky states that Noach was the progenitor of the principle that mundane acts can be transformed into mitzvot when they are performed for the sake of heaven. He established this principle by means of his Ola offering which symbolized his intention to dedicate every facet of his existence to divine service. The constant vicissitudes of life chip away at a person's false sense of self-reliance and sharpen the focus of his spiritual perspective. God made man vulnerable precisely in order to help him renew his relationship with God. If we will internalize the lesson Noach taught to mankind, we can succeed in fulfilling the ultimate purpose of our own existence. Well, once again, we have not progressed very far chronologically. However, I don't want to get into Avraham Yitzhak and Yaakov to just get into it and then leave it. So I think we'll begin to wind up a bit here. Um, and then perhaps we've got a few minutes, perhaps take some questions if there are any. Um, next week, God willing, we'll be able to cover Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, hopefully touch on Moshe, although we may have to postpone the more modern historical commentary on the seven universal laws until after the uh, scheduled June-July series. I do hope these insights, both spiritual and historical, have been of benefit and a blessing to you.
In closing the shiur, and before we take questions, I would like to share with you something that was sent to me three years ago with the notation, An Ancient Jewish Prayer. It goes like this. From the cowardice that shrinks from new truth. From the laziness that is content with half-truth. From the arrogance that thinks it knows all truth. O God of truth, deliver us. Now, um, I see that we had some new people come into the class that weren't here for the start. Would anyone like me just to review the classes that are coming up in June and July? Or does anyone have any questions that they would like to uh, put up on the, on the uh, bulletin board and I can respond to them? All right, I'm glad you listened to the recordings. That's wonderful. These recordings, the classes, um, are put up on uh, my own website, shuvu, www.shuvu.com. Uh, the classes during June and July will not be because they, though are, they are classes that will be by tuition. So obviously for the benefit of those that have, uh, have enrolled in the classes, uh, the classes will be within the realm of the Noahide Nations uh, website as well. Um, I would invite you to go on to both the Noahide Nations website, www.noahidenations.com, uh, as well as our own, to find articles that are written to help you in this journey. Um, at our Shuva website, you will find many articles written by rabbis and Torah teachers here in Israel that will help you in your search for a solid spiritual identity as B'nai Noach. We also have a weekly newsletter that you can subscribe for on the site. Uh, Roy, you subscribed last week. And uh, the recordings will be going out to you. And on the Noahide Nations website, we've got uh, all kind. They've got their web store up and running now with books and learning resources. I would highly recommend the Path of the Righteous Gentile. It was written um, over 15 years ago, but when I first read this book, I will tell you that really, I mean, I was shocked. I had no idea just how far-ranging. Um, actually applying the seven Noahide commandments was. It was an incredible, incredible book to read. Uh, you should be encouraged as well to know that the uh, rabbis here in Jerusalem, and particularly the rabbis that we're working with at Shuvu, are really, uh, th there's so many books um, that have been written uh, that are expressly for B'nai Noach. The issue we have right now is that they are in Hebrew. And so B'srat Hashem uh, will be able to arrange for the translation, get funding so that they can be translated. Rabbi uh, Yol Schwartz has written a wonderful little book uh, that has... Rizella, I see your question. I'll get to it there just in a moment. Um, Robert Schwartz has written a wonderful book on how to observe the Hagim, how to observe Pesach, Shavuot, Sukkot, Rosh Hashanah, what they mean for B'nai Noach. Uh, at the moment it's in Hebrew. We hope to get it in, in English. Uh, as we come up to the feasts, uh, we do get his lessons on each of the feasts translated and we put them up on our Shuvu website. Arizella, you're asking, you're from France. Uh, wonderful, bienvenue. Uh, uh, you want to know if there are courses like yours in French or Spanish. 
unfortunately, at the moment, uh, no, there aren't at the moment. But uh, God willing, as this grows, perhaps we will be able to get them in, Fran- in French. Um, someday, please God, we will <laughs> all be able to speak Hebrew. Uh, the prophet Zahania said that Zahania said that. Uh, you know, at the time of Mashiach, that Hashem would turn all of our, our tongues to one language, that we could all her- serve Hashem together. And please God, that day will uh, will not be too far along. Um, perhaps, Arzella, is it easier for you to read English? If it's easier for you to read English, maybe I can, uh, can direct. It is? Okay. Uh, then why don't you send me an email at Ashira, A-S-H-I, actually I'll put it up on the site, Um, let's put it this way, I'll put it up on the site, send me an email at info at shuvu.com and uh, I'll be able to maybe send you some materials that will make the classes easier for you to understand. And you know that goes for everyone else too, I'm not excluding you. Are there any questions before we close things down for today? No, it looks like everything is fine. Nobody's got any questions. Oh, just a second, Roy. Uh, now that I am considered a Noahide, is it right to also refer to myself as a Goy? <laughs> this only means nations. Uh, correct. Uh, actually, the word Goy, yes, uh, does mean nations. Goyim is the plural of nations. Uh, you are, all mankind are B'nai Noach. And the word Gentile uh, or Goy, you know, developed over time. Uh, they're, they're like, there's a sensitivity to it. I would just suggest to people that uh, that they consider you a B'nai Noach, a Ben Noach, a, a Noahide. Are you, that you are from the nations. I know for myself uh, and in my teachings and my articles, I avoid the word goy. I avoid the, I mean, having come from being, uh, being a goy to being a Jew. <laughs> um, yeah, that's right. It doesn't rhyme with your name, right? Having come from being a Gentile to being a Jew, I know that there was a period of time that I was extremely, extremely sensitive. As I was coming into the Torah, I, the word goy really, I was very sensitive to it and I saw it uh, in a very unfavorable light. And so I understand when people feel that way. So I try to use Ben Bat Noach, B'nai Noach, God fears from the nations. And actually, as I explained in last week's class, or the first class, there is a stigma uh, in, for many people with the word uh, B'nai Noach as well. And that's because the Noahid mitzvot have not been properly taught. Um, certainly, uh, within certain Christian circles, uh, they don't teach them. And within some of the messianic circles and the lost tribe circles, uh, they s- use the excuse, well, why would you want to only have seven when the rabbis, or when the Jews have 613? This is just a ploy of the rabbis to keep you from following the Torah. That is totally not true. But what happens is it creates a stigma. And so what we try to do is that in ancient times, the B'nai Noach were actually regarded as, and there's places in the Torah where you can see this, they were regarded as the God-fearers from among the nations. 
And I know in a conversation I had with Rabbi Chaim Richman of the Temple Institute a while back, uh, he really would like to see the, the term God-fears become much more accepted, just because that's what we're all, you know, we are taking upon ourselves fear of Hashem, fear of Shemayim, and that is a very positive thing. Okay, Arizella, you're saying as B'nai Noah, we, can we do things in order to promote the Torah around us? Yes, you certainly can. Um, because I know that Jews are, do not proselytize, so I do not know if it's possible to make associations or something like that. Azriella, you're correct, you're right. Um, as Jews, we do not proselytize, we do not missionize. If someone wants to ask a question, has a question about Torah, by all means we explain it, and it is a responsibility for Jews to teach the, the Noahide commandments, the Shiva Mitzvot to the nations. Uh, that was part of the role that we were given at uh, at Har Sinai. Definitely, we know from the Torah that at the end of time in the Messianic era, all of the world will acknowledge Hashem as the one true God, and the Torah will go forth from Yerushalayim and from Zion to to all the nations of the world. And that, if in that way, we can certainly uh, help to push that along by promoting Torah in any way we can. Uh, and showing it in the, in the positive light that it should be seen in, whether we are Jews, whether we are B'nai Noach. Janice, you're saying, um, okay. Uh, Janice, if you send me a an email. Janice is asking, uh, she wants to know about the seven laws and the 66th AM compass. The 66th laws is, is an opinion of a particular rabbi, um, that was some time ago, uh, I think at least a hundred years ago. There's been a progression. First it was seven, then some rabbis said 33, then some said 66, and, and now there's more. But Janice, if you would just send me an email, I'll refer you to a link on our website. There is an article that is on it, a newsletter um, that I will refer you to, and it explains it very well. So just send me an email and I will send that out to you with pleasure. Okay, our time is... Oh, Roy, you're back with... You have no... Okay, Roy is saying, I have no Noahide community in my small town. There is, however, a group of Messianics. They blow the shofar when it is required on holidays. I've been avoiding them because they are Christians. Would I be better off associating with them so I can be part of these events? Ah, that is a difficult question. <laughs> It depends on the relationship that you have with them. I mean, certainly, if you can maintain... No, it's, don't be sorry for... The, all questions are valid. It depends on your comfort level with them. Uh, it's very difficult to be on your own. If you can be a stable and positive influence on the Messianic congregation, that's a positive thing. But when you go in there, you can't help but partake in Messianic worship because it surrounds you. And we're not to mix worship. So really, uh, what you're doing is having come out of idolatry and come into the Torah, when you go and, and worship with the Messianics, you're going in and worship, you're, you're embracing idolatry again, even though in your heart you don't want to. So I would say I wouldn't worship with them. If you, I mean, obviously they live in your community, be friendly with them, explain your love for Torah to them, explain the seven Noahide commandments to them, but don't worship with them. Uh, and Janice is saying there's, okay. Um, Janice has put up a notice on the bulletin board that Rabbi Todd says there are actually thousands of mitzvot that make up the seven. 
Well, the Torah contains 613, and then there are the halachot, the laws uh, that go upon them. The guideline for people from the nations, for B'nai Noach, is that there are the, the seven are portals to many, many more. Certainly, the mitzvot that deal with justice, compassion, mercy, purity, the, the sexual uh, relationship guidelines are all things that B'nai Noah can apply to their lives. However, there are certain commandments in the Torah that are there specifically for Jews in their role as a nation of priests. These are the commandments that are specifically for the Kohanim, the commandments that are specifically related to the service in the temple, the commandments that deal with things that must be done by Jews in the land of Israel, that can only be done in the land of Israel, the commandments that are there to as Hukim, things we don't understand, that Jews are supposed to do that distinguish them in their role as priests. These are the commandments that the Noahide mitzvot don't embrace because the role of these commandments are specifically related to the temple. I mean, they're commandments that, that Jews who aren't Kohanim or Levim can't keep themselves. The 613 have something for everyone, but a B'nai Noah can with increasing um, familiarity and knowledge in the Torah and the Sheva Mitzvot, the rabbis are now understanding that there is much more that a B'nai Noach can take on than just a purely Peshat, a purely literal interpretation of the seven. They see the seven as, as openings to much more. Okay, we've come to the end of the class. Thank you, everyone. Shalom from Yerushalayim. Uh, God willing, we will be back next Thursday at 10 a.m. EST. Again, I invite you to visit the Shuvu website at www.shuvoo.com. You definitely have to visit the Noahide Nations website, www.noahidenations.com. And just to keep, there's on both of these websites, uh, there are new materials every week. And so make certain that you keep checking because there will be new articles. Uh, with Shuvu, we have a, a wonderful group of rabbis that contribute each week for us. We have new parasha commentaries that are written uh, by Rabbi Avram Greenbaum and Rabbi Yul Schwartz. Um, Yul Schwartz's is especially for B'nai Noach, and they are up new on the website each week. And we just uh, thank you now. Uh, it was great having you all in the class. And uh, have a wonderful week. Have a restful uh, Shabbat. And we'll see you, God willing, next week. Shalom. <laughs>